0: Right, 1 Corinthians uh, 13, my title is Love, pretty obvious I suppose from the passage. Now, um, I was shown uh, recently something from a a Christian pregnancy crisis counselling centre and they were talking about uh, women who'd gone there having had abortions and were now deeply troubled and uh, they spoke about uh, various stages in the woman's recovery, if you like, and they were talking about how some of them felt angry uh, afterwards and started to blame other people. And then there were these various stages. And then there was this right near the end of the bit I read. Uh, moving through this these various stages, they no longer were angry with themselves. And they've accepted their mistakes. And then this. They can now surround themselves with the loving forgiveness of God. And I just couldn't have. Asking myself, that sounds great, but is it as easy as that then? All you have to do is apparently come through these stages and you no longer angry with yourself and you accept your mistake. And now apparently you can surround yourself with the loving forgiveness of God. Is it as easy as that? Did not John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus himself insist that you had to repent? and believe the good news before you could ever get anywhere. Well, my title then is, Is Love. Uh, One of the almost, I say almost, inevitable consequences of living in a house with two teenage girls years ago uh, and a wife was that uh, they would want to watch Pride and Prejudice on a number of occasions. So often, in fact, that even I have got the gist of the story. And there's a reverend in it, a vicar, Mr. Collins a rather obsequious, I would say an odious man who is, um, has a, a wealthy benefactor, Lady Catherine. And then I remember Christian Vicar saying some years ago that in his church, which was in London, once a year there'd be a very large gathering at, in the building that he was a vicar at. And uh, that would be all sponsored and arranged By a very wealthy benefactor and one particular occasion uh, this passage 1st Corinthians 13 on love was read and while they were having coffee and cakes they were too posh to have tea and biscuits they had posh coffee and cakes this uh, wealthy benefactor came up to the vicar to make conversation and said what a beautiful heartwarming passage 1st Corinthians 13 was and the vicar went to do Get his attention and so said to him in reply, the those who initially would have received this, those to whom it was initially addressed would not have found it heartwarming and beautiful. they would have been angry, they would have been deeply offended. Well, why did he say that? Why would they be, have been offended? Because although there are tremendous doctrinal truths in First Corinthians the letter, Paul is not writing to pat him on the back, nor is he writing some sucky, sentimental slush. This chapter is an interruption between 12 and 14 of his teaching on spiritual gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And he's interrupting it deliberately because he is less than thrilled, underwhelmed I think is the word these days, less than thrilled about the way they're behaving, especially the way they're behaving with these precious gifts of the Holy Spirit. These gifts were not badges of merit that they could wear or epaulets like the military have. You know, they were precious gifts. And particularly tongues uh, and prophecy were supernatural gifts and they were to be used in love for the benefit of the church. And they weren't being used like that. And so when we come to... Paul unpacking what love is, if the Corinthians were listening, they would have been cut to the heart. They would have been devastated. I remember, um, you know, in the past, sometimes we'd have a a trainee teacher or there'd be a lecture or, um, or listening to somebody in a sermon and they ask your opinion. And sometimes they say things that before they ask your opinion, oh, I thought that lesson went well, what did you think? Well, you you, you know, you realize now what you're going to say is going to just take their legs away. They're going to to be so deflated. Or what did you think of my sermon? That kind of thing. Well, you you know, it's pretty poor. Well, yes, the gifts of the Spirit were sensational, some of them, spectacular, thrilling. But there was something they needed to be convinced of. What was it? That love was the greatest and is the greatest, and it was not one of the gifts that somebody may have, that somebody else may not have. This was essential. In fact, Paul actually says, without love, what have you got? Well, you're in big trouble, because even if you were burnt for Christ's sake, then if you like, even if you say you're a Christian, without love, you gain nothing, absolutely nothing. doesn't matter what talents or gifts, or strengths, or attributes you think you may have, and you may indeed have, without love, I am, he says, nothing. Nothing. Even if you're prepared to take a stand and be executed for the sake of the church, if you like. You're nothing without love. Now, I want to start near the end of the chapter with a more controversial passage, and then we'll get to the bits that are not controversial, but they're much harder hitting. So let's go to, to the end, because uh, he says near the end, we see, but we don't see perfectly. We see darkly, as it were. We see it as if the mirror is a bit grubby. We can't see perfectly. We can't see clearly, even though Second Corinthians 4, you know, the God who said, let light shine out the darkness has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't see that perfectly now. We see a poor reflection, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 13 12 says. We see now a poor reflection, as if you're looking in the back of a tarnished spoon. You know, you see, but you don't see very well. It's like when I look in a wing mirror sometimes at one of these freezing cold mornings and I realize that, you know, there's ice all over it. I, I see, but I can't see very well. And so he says, we don't see very well now, but one day Christians will see. One day we'll see perfectly. Well, that must be the last day. I would say, don't forget, I'm looking at the controversial bit now. I would say that that's pretty clear. It's got to be the last day. We know in part, but then we'll fully know. Again, I would have thought that's the last day when final judgment and glory, when faith and hope will fade into the background. We'll see him as he is, as he actually is. And most importantly, love will remain. We we'll love him perfectly forever, and we know his perfect love for us forever. No problem. I wouldn't have thought much of a problem there. If you've got questions, you can ask them afterwards. But then more controversial are the verses just before that. From verse 8 onwards, I suppose. Love never fails. A tangent prophecy. They will stop. They will cease. They will end. Well, the question is, when will they end? Well, the answer is it's straightforward. When perfection comes. Ah, but when does perfection come? And that's it. That's pretty clear so far. it will end when perfection comes. But what's not clear at all is when perfection will come. What does it mean? It can mean culmination. It can mean end. When is this perfection? What does it refer to? And there are dear Christians who, who pick up sides. And there are a number of sides on this. And boy, has it caused division over, this, over centuries. There are some comments made to be over the years in Town Hill. Of course, uh, your church doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit, does it? Because the veil they take of this, you see. And so that's what they do. you know, they, so they accuse us of. Or I remember one lovely guy saying, Now, what you need up in Town Hill is a miraculous, a case of miraculous healing. And I said him, Well, as it happened last week, there was a case. And I, I itemized it. He said, Well, now the people will come flooding in. I said, Well, no, I I doubt if they will. I don't think they will. They might, but I doubt. Certainly from the Bible's point of view, miracles, even in the Old Testament, they they never fostered faith, did they? People, Exodus, they'd seen so many miracles and most of them died in the desert. But of course, the guy who was saying to me, you know, what you need is is miracles, was locked onto his particular theological viewpoint and he wasn't going to budge. So Christians have been divided because of their interpretation of perfection. Some say it's when Jesus comes for the last time. Others say it's when the Bible is completed, if you like. Others say, well, no, it's the, it's the end of the apostolic age when the church is solidly formed and the apostles die out, leaving the body of truth, the, the New Testament, and so on. Well, you pay your money you takes your choice. Really. You, you know, people do pick up size, and sometimes it, it is ugly. Sometimes people are so vehement that it's caused a lot of trouble between churches and sometimes within churches. All depends on what the word perfection means. But if perfection means the complete, completed, completing of the New Testament or the establishment of the church, then there can't be any prophecies. And tongues now. That's where the division comes in. If you take that view, then there can't be any now. And I have to say, some people I've known take that view because they don't need to use their spiritual discernment at all now, because nothing can happen, if you like. There can't be any, you know, remember, you know, you know some of you have heard the story of a well-known uh preacher in America who says, come to this church, nothing's going to happen here, because they, nothing can happen, you see because he's decided that there are no supernatural spectacular gifts for today. I don't take that view, but there are good people who take that view and good people who go against it. There we are. Now, that's the controversial bit over. Now, to what is crystal clear, but a lot more hard-hitting. Let me just highlight when he unpacks love. I'm not going to go through all the verses at all. You can look at them yourself if you want to. But... Love, it. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't boast. I just picked two. How are we doing so far on that? Hard thing, isn't it? The Bible sets the bar so high. Well, why? Because God is holy. And the bar is high because that's the standard. He is good. He is good. Not just he does good things, which he does. Not just he says good things, which he does. He is good. There's the standard. You know, I always remember as a young Christian, I've been a Christian, I don't know how many months, a good few months, and somebody came to preach on the Ten Commandments. I'd never read them before. And when he read them out, I remember being shocked. I couldn't get past the first one. There were 10. And I'm thinking, well, I can't get past the first one. Yeah, that's the standard. Love, he goes on. Love is not proud. Oh, dear, dear. Bang! Don't you feel it hit? Love is not self-seeking. I mean, so much of my Love is soaked with, with self and you as is. You know, somebody wrote, self is like a cuckoo in the nest of your soul. You are not obligated to feed that cuckoo. You, and you're sitting there probably saying, well, we know that. So why do you feed it? Why do we? Somebody else said, faith in Christ is the opposite of pride. You can't have both. If you're trusting in Christ at that particular moment, you cannot be proud at the same time. Well, I, I don't know what you make of that, but uh, and then somebody else said, I mean, faith in Christ is not agreement with God; it's an appetite for God. And so, when we come to sin, then when we come when we decide to sin, what we're saying is, I want this more than I want God. My appetite is greater for this than for God at that particular moment. That's why. When we come to worship, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, whatever. To fail to love him in a worship service is a serious crime. You can't worship him if you don't love him. You can't. Love is wanting the best. He wants the best for you. If you love somebody, you want the best for them. I always remember... uh, a bunch of teenagers. We were giving out tracts on the street on a rainy November evening. And there were there was a girl and about four or five teenagers huddled in a bus shelter, went up and gave them some tracts to try to talk, share the gospel with them. And then looked at the girl and, and I just said, excuse me, are you expecting? She said, yeah, it's going to be a girl. And I said, "Oh dear, 16. I said, you know, in 16 years time, do you want your daughter to be sitting in a Dump bus shelter with four blocks like this. Well, no! She said, "I want the best for her." So well, you need to start now. Then and do something about it now, because love wants the best for somebody, isn't it? And if you if you say, "Yeah, I want the best for her," but I can't be bothered to do anything about it, then it's not real love, is it? You know, I've read some quotes by Davina McCall lately. You know, Davina McCall mostly nonsense what she wrote, but when she said. A, what she said about love, she was spot on. Love is action. That's it. It's not slushy feelings. It's not cleverly chosen words. Love is action. It's not gooey feelings. Love shows itself always in action. As somebody wrote uh, years ago, his mercy, God's mercy, is much, much, much more than passive pity. It's divine action. God loves in reality, in truth, in action. And, you know, the amazing thing is he loves you like that and he loves me like that. I remember uh, a weekend in the north of England, donkeys years ago now, and a man giving his testimony, he had cerebral palsy. And, uh, you know, he he stumbled through his testimony. And then right near the end, he just said something like, See, Jesus is not embarrassed by my speech. He's not embarrassed by my stumbling. He loves me so much. He's not embarrassed or ashamed to call me his child. But that is tremendous. And that's because Jesus loves us with a love that's way above. It's sacrificial, agape love. Imagine how Jordan is a lady living in Town Hill. Uh, she has three kids. The house catches fire. Wonderfully, the fire service gets there, gets Jordan and the three children out. But everything else is burnt. All their possessions gone and there's no insurance. They've lost everything. Everything. Not even a sock. They've lost it all. And people come round, uh, round the, knocking the doors. And they say, would you like to give? And people will ask. Do you know what people will answer? Uh, how much is everybody asking? giving? That's what they'd say. If they're going to give it all. But here's the Lord Jesus. What does he give? I doubt if people came around knocking the doors that somebody would say, right, here's my car keys, here's the deeds to the house, here's my bank book, you can have all my savings, you can have it all. But Jesus, what does he do? He gives all he has, he lays down his life for people, I like guess. What kind? Of love is this. A love i never known. As we were singing that, you know. You know, praise God that I am not saved by reaching some kind of tipping point. I'm not. Thank God I'm not. I'm saved because Jesus does it all. And takes my sin. And gives me a righteousness as good as his. Because it is his, he demonstrates his love for me in this Romans five, and I was still godless, still powerless, still ungodly. Jesus Christ died for me. praise his name. That, that's, this is love. Psalm 118 he parted the heavens and came down. I've, you know I've loved that verse for donkeys years now. he parted the heavens and came all the way down. As, and if I'd been the only person who'd ever walked the planet, he parted the heavens and came down. He didn't part the heavens that come down vaguely, looking for people who might t- try and join his political party. He deliberately came down to save me. Psalm 118. He's God and He's made his light shine upon us. Upon me, as well as he said, me who caused his pain. 63, I read just last week. Your love is better than life. Really? Really? You know, First John, what kind of love is this? This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and gave his son as the propitiation for our sins, as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is what the apostle wants the Corinthians to see. This is what he wants you to see. This is what he wants me to say. You know, somebody wrote correctly, nobody sins out of a sense of guilty. Nobody ever thinks, oh, I really had better lie now. I really had better sin now. No, we sin deliberately when we love that sin more than we love the Lord. It is that simple. And that's why sin against the Lord is so serious. That's why he asks Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, do you love me? And do you love me more than these? Whatever these were. And that's why we have to come. We have to repent. We have to come back home to our father in heaven. Taking words with us, spelling it out where we've sinned. Asking for forgiveness. And when we do come. We find this love. We find the door sins are enormous. We find his mercy is more. And we'll sing that now. Amen.